0: Hello and welcome to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups. In this episode, we sit down with Executive Director Sarah Hamill. She opens up about her own life story and the healing that occurred through the power of small groups and how it all unknowingly led to her being such an integral part of this ministry. So without further ado, here is getting to know Sarah Hamill. Well, Sarah, thank you so much um, for sitting down on this second episode. I know that, as I mentioned with Scott in the first episode, we've been talking about um, doing this podcast and much like Scott, Um, I'm sure you're not the most enthusiastic about having to sit down and talk about yourself. You'd probably much more prefer um, to be talking about uh, Restore Small Group in the ministry. Um, But it is important. I think we're trying to allow people to have a little bit of awareness of who you are, uh, especially, as I mentioned with Scott in the first episode, that anybody that gets into... This kind of work, uh, trying to address mental health and healing, uh, usually comes from their own personal story. And so um, I'd love to start there, just about a little bit of your background, a little bit your own personal story and how um, some of this work came to be in your own life.
1: Yes. So absolutely. I I have looked around Mm. in my life for other kind of work that was meaningful And to be honest, I've always found myself back here at Restore during this kind of work because I just cannot find anything that really hits to the heart of how important it is to help other human beings be human, Mm. realize their potential in life, Um, and to really think about how much it would have made a difference for me Mm. in my own life if I had had more of this Mm. in the beginning. And so my, yes, my personal story is very much a reason why I do this work. I don't, it's funny, I don't tell my personal story all that often. I certainly will tell it in group if it feels like the timing is right or appropriate. But um, many times, um, I think people know Scott's story probably better than mine. Um, But truly, I think he and I actually started our Roads to Recovery Um, in many ways, at kind of the same time 20 years ago. Mm. And so we we sort of share that. And even though we're different ages, I really started my journey in my early 20s. And he kind of started his in his 40s. But we sort of share this affinity for where we are in Mm. that journey. Mm. And for me, really, um, in in every sense of the word, rock bottom for me, hit in my 20s. And when and really, honestly, I've spent the majority of my adult life trying to figure that out right um, and so can absolutely empathize and sympathize with other people who are on the long journey to try to figure out who they are and what their story is. Mm. Because even to this day, I mean, I'm 47, full right. disclosure.
0: Yeah. No, this is a full disclosure <laughs> yeah. kind of deal <laughs> and, here. So.
1: And I'm still on many levels trying to figure it out. Right. And for me now, it's I have way more awareness around who I am and how I react to things, but I still get quite frustrated with myself, to be sure, honest, sure. about the things that I still have not overcome, mm. the triggers I still can't stop from happening, the negative thinking that I still have to Work daily to overcome, mm. and I think back and I'm like I, you know, often wish I'd had a sort of different start. But at the same time, if I hadn't had that start, I would have no legitimacy to sit in group. I think with other people and process their mm. stuff. So, you know, I came out of a family that um, was uh, up until about the time I was ten was in, was for all intents and purposes a kind of normal family, right? But my parents divorced and that really probably at age 10 was the start of sort of life becoming very chaotic and unpredictable Mm. and the sand was sort of always shifting right Mm. beneath my feet. And a kid, you know, as I tell many people in group, like a kid has no way to process these changes that are happening all around them and they're just doing what they can to survive. And I think that's what happened to me from really from age 10 up into my early 20s was just looking around and saying, when, like today, how do I survive?
0: Right. How do I survive? Alone, you're not, you're not even talking to, it sounds like similar to Scott's story where there just wasn't a lot of conversation around the decision was made and there's just not a lot of conversation right. around how checking in with you, how you're feeling, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. No,
1: I, Um. no, very much sort of emotionally invisible mm. <laughs> in, in my childhood. And mm. so, Um, And I know that's a lot of people's story, so I don't like to linger on it like it's, you know, somehow unusual. I know a lot of people have suffered emotional neglect, physical neglect. Um, But I think, uh, you know, my parents were just struggling. I see them now as human beings. Mm. I get it. But it doesn't matter uh, in many ways. I I still suffered. Um, And I think what what I basically did for me personally was developed a huge sense of codependency Mm. and that word is thrown around a lot these days I think but for me codependency was I think kind of textbook like I knew that the way that I could get approval from my parents was to be good Mm. and I'm a one on the Enneagram Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so my whole motivation in life is to be good yeah Uh, and so that's exactly what I did I was like I have to be good to be accepted so I will do everything that that takes. Mm. And I will create and I absolutely did create a total false self. I was a good student, but you know, I also wanted to be the perfect daughter, the responsible one. Mm. And so what I did is I took on that family role of caretaker and peacemaker and I that I used that for years. Mm. And you know they always say Whatever your coping mechanism was in your early childhood is your worst enemy as an adult. Wow. And that
0: (laughs) That's well said.
1: Couldn't have been more true. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) When you try to live the perfect life, you will find out very quickly you cannot. Right. And when you do make mistakes and you're not equipped to know how to make mistakes, Mm. it's devastating. Mm. So I that's for me, then I in my early twenties, I'm in college and honestly by the time i was 20 i just literally had made you know the shame cycle was in full swing right, yeah. i was making bad decisions because i couldn't keep up the false self so right. the shame of the false self was that behind the scenes i was doing things i shouldn't have been doing mm-hmm. in relationships in acting out behavior then i would you know feel terrible and the false self would even be more Prominent. Yes. Yep. So it just went around and around and around like that. And it's amazing how many bad mistakes you can make in a very short period of time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think I everybody feel, can relate yeah. to that. Yeah.
1: I feel like by the time between like 16 and 20, I lived two different lives. So,
0: well, what I love about this portion of your story is that traditionally in our culture, your 20s are where you leave the, you know, it's like this positive time of, Exploration and your, you know, and that's kind of how it's sold as a when you're because I remember being um, in my early twenties and feeling that pressure that I should be not suffering because I'm only I'm only I'm early in my twenties and life should be going a certain way. So I can I think a lot of people can probably relate to your um, story that you developed these things in your later childhood and then in your teenage years and then it just it just catches up it just it catches does. up with you.
1: It does, and I think I have. Probably the greatest or kind of the soft spot for me is to see, you know, kids really who are getting maybe into trouble or, you know, making poor life decisions at 18, 19, 20 that are going to affect their life forever. Right. And I know some, we think this magical number, it's 18 and now we're adults and now you're accountable in a way to society that you weren't Mm. one year ago for some reason. Mm. And I just always think to myself, you know, but what, if you don't give a kid any skills up until the time they're 18, there's nothing magical that happens at 18. Mm. They just take all the (laughs) non-skills, go out into the world as an adult and have no decision making ability, Mm -hmm. no life skills, no emotional capacity. And so I always, the, sometimes I think as a society, we sort of levy judgment, you know, on people at a very early age when I say, well, what, what were they given to mm. be able to even navigate this world? And that's right. how I look back on my decisions. I regret so many of them. And sure. yet I go, what skills really did I have? Right. Like to navigate it. Right. So all that to say, in I found myself in college. I was a junior. And you know, lo and behold, I get into a bad relationship, one of many, mm. uh, but this time I find myself pregnant mm. and I'm single and I haven't known this person for very long. And uh, long story short, obviously the relationship falls apart and I'm right. faced with a really tough choice. Mm. And um, ultimately what I decided was that I would, I would have my daughter, but that I would uh, give her I would give her to adopting parents. I hate to say give up for adoption. I hate that phrase. Uh, But that I would choose a family for her because I knew at this age, I just had the slightest bit of insight that I was not ready Mm -hmm. to be a parent and that I would screw it up. And even though I didn't even at that time really fully understand family cycles and how those are revisited on each generation, I just kind of knew I'm just going to end up Mm -hmm. making the same
0: mistakes i'm just
1: gonna take her through the same childhood Mm. and i do not want to do that and i want to give her a chance at another life and it was the hardest decision i've ever made in my life and it was the first time i ever encountered that level of grief Mm. it was the first time i had lost something that was just absolutely devastating and i i i've counseled people who have gone through adoptions since because i've I think it's a unique circumstance where, you you know, unless you've been through it, you don't really know. But I cried probably two years. Mm. I mean, I don't know that there was, I used to measure my progress and the amount of days I would go without crying. Wow. Um, So when I reached the point where I could cry like maybe once a month, I was like, making progress, winning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) So, yeah. um, So it was a long process back. But at the same time, As hard as that was and as much as I regret those circumstances, I don't regret her. I just regret that like all of it had to happen in this, that particular way. If it had not been for that, I don't know where my life would have gone. So I look back and I say, terrible, yes. But at the same time, like, I don't know. It could have been much worse (laughs) where I ended up after that. So that really began my journey to a new life. Mm. I realized I just had a huge wake up moment that was like, how did I get here? Mm. Um, And, you know, when you have to spend nine months essentially kind of alone with your thoughts, because when you're pregnant in college, not a lot of people are like, hey, let's let's hang out, out, you know, (laughs) see you're pregnant. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, So it's
0: very isolating. It's very isolating. Yeah.
1: But a lot of time to think, a lot of time to pray, and uh, a lot of time to just humbly come to the conclusion that I had pretty much screwed up. And so ironic, right? Because the one thing that a perfectionist, right. false self doesn't want to do is screw up. It's and like I, your
0: greatest fear coming true.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, this couldn't be any more obvious, right? I'm walking around with a, like a physical manifestation right. of the fact that I did something that right. you know everyone considers to be Shameful.
0: Right. Well, and that's the burden that females carry because guys can, they don't have that. And so that's just a unique um, personal thing for a female to have to move through. And I can imagine yes. anybody that's uh, uh, listening to this podcast that's ever gone through some, anything like that similar uh, completely understands what you're talking about.
1: It is a, yes, unfortunately, <laughs> we do have to sort of carry that, right. um, that that physical um, I mean it's a, it's, it's obvious, yes. <laughs> um, no hiding it. Yeah, no hiding it. Uh, but I do think that it ironically was the shattering of my false self mm. w- like once once and for all. Mm. And that I, I find it ironic, but I'm like, but I think God it was sort of me being saved in that moment mm. because there's there was literally just me saying, well, here I am. Mm. Like, you guys all thought this, but I'm not that. Mm. And it was like, it was, a, it was such a hard situation, but it was liberating. Mm. Like, I finally was like, here I am. Mm. I am yes. totally <laughs> screwed up. <laughs> like here, everyone. Yes. Um, I'm not
0: the perfect daughter. In yes. fact, this is who I am. But I, I, I think I can completely relate to having that nature to please. And then something getting so bad in your life that it starts to leak out and people start to see it and all, all the judgment and stuff that you fear it's coming,
1: it's coming. but you're yeah. still
0: here. You're like, I'm still here though. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, even though that is, that used to be part of my identity, I'm still here and I'm, I'm, I gotta, right. I gotta figure out how to move forward now because that's over now.
1: Right. Yes. It made me dig into who am I really, mm. my sense of integrity, my mm. sense of dignity, it was just, you know, I had to, I had to, you know, s- kind of stand tall in the midst of that and say, yeah, you can go ahead and love your judgment. But also I have like hung around all these. I know everyone is engaging in similar activities. Yeah. I just happen to mm-hmm. be the one mm-hmm. and that's okay. But you know, it, 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 but it did, it made me really finally define who I was. Mm-hmm. And so that really began the, that was the valley and then it began a very long <laughs> <laughs> ascent upwards. Right,
0: the ever-going, the ever-evolving ever o- ever right. mm-hmm. ascent
1: upwards. And I'm I'm not saying that it's all been uh, easy. It's not remotely been easy since then. Sure. But that's really when I started to do my work and go to counseling mm. and process with a counselor. It was the first time I had the revelation of maybe my home life had played a part in wow. this, that this wasn't all my fault. Right, uh, And so... And starting to differentiate, it was the first time I started to pull away from my family and differentiate myself as a person mm. from that situation and be strong on my own. Mm. And so all of that, like I said, terrible situation, but it all had a good result. And it plays into everything that I try to do now with the, with the ministry. I understand grief and loss. I understand what it's like to have to make hard decisions. I understand It's not just a linear path to health Mm. and well-being. You take two steps forward and one step back. It's not like my codependency just magically disappeared. Right,
0: because you decided it would be so, right? Right.
1: I struggled for years still trying to differentiate myself from my family Mm. and figure out who I was and what did it really mean to love someone What did it really mean to love myself? What is the definition of helping, which I carry around with me all the time? It's from the Boundaries book by uh, Cloud and Townsend. Mm. But helping is doing for someone what they cannot do for themselves. Mm. And every time I get stuck in codependency, I ask myself that question. Am I helping? Because maybe I'm doing for this person what they actually can't do for themselves.
0: Mm, That's a great question.
1: So I'm always, you know, having to navigate through codependency. And I also have just the greatest amount of empathy for anyone who's trying to navigate through very complex relationships, whether it's with their family or their spouse. And the sort of... Sometimes I think the Christian approach is that if you... You always have to run back into that relationship for forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm. And I just don't think it's quite that easy. Mm. Um, I think when it comes to relationships, um, you're you're always navigating... Um, that, that sometimes forgiveness is possible, but reconciliation isn't. Mm. Or is reconciliation actually going to be good for either one of you? Mm. And so there's all of these elements of my life that I bring into group, but it also makes me feel open to hearing other people's stories and understanding those. And I sit in group, and I'm like, I don't have the answers for you because mm. I'm still some in some ways trying to figure it right. out in my own life. Right. But I will listen, mm. and I will sit with you. Um, so I... All of that has played into the journey, too, for my career. Um, I think after I, I came through that whole time with my daughter and I ended up getting married and I had two kids of my own, um, I kind of lost the thread of, of, in a sense, realizing that that story really would have anything to do with right. my career. right? Um, or that that was even something that was valuable right. in any sense. yeah. Uh, but it's just part of my story. And... But in 2007, and this is the the year I point to is sort of God tapping me on the shoulder. Mm. You know, when I talk about my relationship with God and I think when other people talk about theirs, I I mean, I I think some people, I I hear that people hear from God in such clear ways. And I would say that probably I could point to maybe a handful of times in my life where I've I heard from God. Which also
0: creates shame, too, because you're like, why am I not hearing you? It's like, this guy's getting messages every day. I haven't heard anything in a year, you know, so I totally understand. Yeah, I'm
1: like, where's my voice? (laughs) But in this moment, I do feel like there was a moment in which I was just going along with my life. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was a preschool teacher, and I was just kind of doing what I had to do to provide for my family, but then I had two young kids, and so my schedule needed to be flexible and all that. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my – the priest at my church comes up to me and says, we have a position at opening up at the church for a pastoral care coordinator. And I oh, wow. I want you to do it. Mm. I think you have the skills. And I remember that conversation vividly because I went home and I was like, what skills? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, what he me
0: well, exactly, I don't have yeah. any
1: idea what you're talking about. Right. Um, I don't even know what a pastoral care coordinator really does. <laughs> okay. And so I thought it was really odd. He's like, why me? Because I'm literally a preschool teacher and I've I don't even know how you would know that I have the skills.
0: Not something you were planning for is a key part of this. Yeah. No.
1: And I kind of look back and chuckle because it seemed like such a hard decision at the time. And I'm like, you know how how God is. He decides he's going to give you one challenge. And that one seemed really hard at the time. Mm -hmm. And then you don't realize that what you're agreeing to is like a lifetime of harder challenges (laughs) coming down the road. But I look back on that. I'm like, I don't know why that was such a hard decision. But I was afraid because I didn't know what it was or Mm -hmm. if I could do it. But then I said to myself, that's ridiculous. If you're afraid of it, that's like not even a reason to mm. say no. So if he thinks you have the skills, why not give it a try? Mm, yeah. So then I did. I became a pastoral care coordinator, kind of made it up as I went along, to be honest. I was like, mm. hey, we care for people. And so found ways to care. Right. Um, but I did that for about three years. But I felt like that was the moment where where God was like, this is this is the path. Mm. And there's something down this road that you have to go exploring. And so that's what I started to do. I started to look around and say, well, what's out there? I don't even know. What do people do with the skill? Right. And that led me to the clinical pastoral education program at St. Thomas. And so I entered that program. I was a hospital chaplain for a year. Oh, cool. But that was the program that I think really changed, really defined even more so what, what it was I wanted to do or what I might be good at doing. Right. But that program, for anyone out there who's been in it or been in a CPE program at all, mm. it challenges you so deeply because everything that you do with your patients, you have to come back into your cohort and you have to explain why. Mm. Like I said this to this person and then their job is to challenge you. And like, why would you say that? Oh, wow. Um, you know, oh, I, I asked this person if they wanted to pray, why did you why did you ask them that? You know, mm. you should wait for them to ask you like all of these things right. where you start to become painfully aware of like <laughs> the boundaries between you and right. this other person. I remember this huge revelation when our supervisor was like, by the way, when you go into a hospital room, you stand until someone invites you to sit. Wow. And I would talk to people for two hours standing at the foot of their bed because no one ever asked me to sit. <laughs> but that was the rule. Yeah. I was like, Oh my god.
0: As the, as a chaplain, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Because the point was if they wanted you to sit, they would invite you to sit. yeah. And wow. so it was this whole awareness of other me mm-hmm. versus other people and me projecting onto other people mm-hmm. what I thought they needed.
0: Right. It's like that codependency thing coming back yes. again. Right. I can relate um, to that for sure.
1: And them going, nope, you have to, you have to become very aware of the other mm. person. And it was, and then of course we had to explore like in all of those moments, what triggered us and what was, what was it bringing up from our own life story wow. and all those things. So I had to really dig in. Yeah. But I I
0: thought I was just going to be a chaplain here. I Realized this was going to be my own inner work.
1: By the way, this is going to be about uh, about you getting your stuff together, right? Um, And yeah, uh, and I walked out transformed from that experience because I explored my story in a way that I had never explored before. But I also Learn so much about how to be with people, mm. um, and then after that, I was like, "Well, I don't, I don't know." Every every part of my story is always like, I finish one thing and then go, "I don't know what I'm supposed to do next." Yep. you know, and then just waiting on God to sort of mm-hmm. push me wherever I'm supposed to go next. Right. So it was after that, leaving that program, that I was exploring once again. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do? And then I found Journey to Freedom on the Why website. Oh wow! Okay. I was, like, poking around on the Why website. Yeah. And I found that Scott was leading a journey to freedom group in uh, a Y here in Nashville. And I was like, well, I don't know why. Honestly, I was like, I'm just intrigued. Mm. I I didn't even know the Y had it. Like, I was like, I don't know what's journey to freedom. Okay. So I, and I was like, well, who better to do it with than Scott? So Mm.
0: did you know anything about Scott at that time or just literally his name journey to freedom? Let's see what's going on here. Yeah. Literally
1: like, oh, this is interesting. Mm. And I often have made. (laughs) I don't know if this is a good thing or not. (laughs) I've made some of my biggest decisions in life just off of gut.
0: Oh yeah. Sure. Prompting. Sure.
1: I feel like the way God talks to me, the only way I know how to, or like it appears in my life is that it's just a very strong Mm. uh, push. Like you've got to go do this. Mm. I don't know why I felt that way about the CPE program at St. Thomas. like, you've got to go do this. Mm. And so um, but yeah, off I went and I, it was not at a Y close to my house. So hour in traffic, into oh, wow. the group. Um, but I knew I had found something when I remember coming home and telling my husband, like, this is really different. And mm. this is very, I don't know why I, I remember continually saying, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm just, I'm here for a reason that I do not fully understand. Mm. And I remember reading the book. It's funny to look back on being a participant in group for the first time because of such a different experience than sure. being a facilitator. Sure. Being a participant so warm and cozy. Mm-hmm. And I look back on that and I was like, yeah, it was just a safe place mm-hmm. every week to be. Um, and an hour and a half totally to myself. And mm-hmm. I had, you know, still younger kids at oh, that yeah. time.
0: Oh, that's yeah. That's like six hours in normal time. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, it was... Time to take care of myself. But then I remember reading the book for the first time and saying, and feeling just this affinity with it because it was simple, it was accessible, mm. but it also touches on some very deep concepts. But at the same time, I think one of the things that really stood out to me was I noticed that in some of his stories about his own spiritual journey, Scott's spiritual journey, was w- some universal threads of Mm. the same journey that I had been on. Mm. And I remember thinking, you always know you've encountered someone who's having an authentic spiritual journey because there will be those sort of landmarkers along the way. There's, Mm. There's the very personal, I think, spiritual journey we have with God that's unique to our story. And then there's also a universal spiritual journey that I think anyone who's gone on the journey hits certain signposts in a way mm. along the way. And you're like, yes. And when you hear someone else try to express it or you or you read it, you go, oh, you know, a fellow traveler. Yes, mm. I too have seen. <laughs> I've come across the signpost. That's post. great. And they get harder and harder, I think, to describe as you go. But right. But in that, I remember reading it and being like, aha, this is someone who has authentically been on a spiritual journey mm. because we've recognized the it's same. It's like
0: that intuitive knowing. Yes. Yeah.
1: And that was what also drew me to it. But then we finished the group and I remember talking to Scott and we had a great connection and I I felt like there was something there and then I left the group and it was like 6 months of nothing. Like I didn't see him again, yeah. didn't talk to him. 6 months of me just sitting at home going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. Mm-hmm. I thought I was supposed to get, get my masters. But I was going back and forth about what I should do, counseling, should I go to divinity school? I remember my CPE supervisor saying to me, I don't think you can go to divinity school. And I was like, why? He's like, you're just way too rebellious. He's like, you'll never, you'll never make it. <laughs> and I was oh, like,
0: that's great. It's like, I thanks like, for the honesty yeah, there. Yeah. Duly noted.
1: Um, he was absolutely right. I yeah. probably would have, might, might have enjoyed the learning of divinity school, but yeah. I don't think the organized, uh, mm-hmm. church was for me. Yeah. So, um,
0: I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that for sure.
1: (laughs) I was like, I don't, I, that's not what I want to be doing. Mm. And not, that's not a uh, slight on anyone who wants to do that. I just kind of knew that was not for me. Okay. So six months, I see a job posted for a uh, group coordinator with Restore Ministries. So Scott's Ministry, there's a group coordinator position open and I say, that's it. Yeah. That's the sign. Yeah. I apply nothing.
0: Mm. (laughs) Maybe not the sign. (laughs)
1: Maybe not the sign. Yeah. But oddly enough, then later on, they must have like posted it, changed their minds. Anyway, later on, another position comes up. I apply for it. Turn in my resume. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm really, I'm really reading point. the signs. Yeah. I'm I'm really discerning. <laughs> and I remember, and again, these are the moments where you kind of go, was that a coincidence? Hmm, mm. Probably not. But I went to the Y on a Saturday. My son was taking karate at the Y and it was his big test for his black belt so I had to be there for several hours mm-hmm. and I ran into a friend who I'd worked with and I were chatting and I said, you know, I've put in my resume for this job at the Y, but I haven't heard anything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's really discouraging. Cause I thought this, I thought this there was something here. Yeah. And I said, but you know, I know Scott and maybe I should, maybe I should reach out. And she mm-hmm. just looks at me and she's like, if you do not reach out, she's like, I will punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. In which case I was like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's God going. Right. Literally, if you do not reach out, I yes. will put you in the mix. Yeah, base. literally. Um, and so I did, and, I, and the rest is history. I, I got the job. Um, not that Scott got the job for me, but sure. but once he was aware that I had applied, right. then the process proceeded. I did get the job. And
0: what year was this?
1: And this was 2011. Okay, okay. So thus began my long uh, journey with Restore, with Scott. Um, I was a group coordinator at the Y for um, about three and a half years. and then when Restore became independent nonprofit, I stepped out for a couple of years because yeah. that was a just a very transitional time.. Yeah. Um, still stayed in nonprofit work, but um, but you know, I, I longed, I mean, I, I grieved um, leaving my job mm-hmm. at the Y so, mm-hmm. so much. And then because, again, I thought this was where I was supposed to be. And,
0: w- and that's that's what's funny is every time you hit these places, it's where I'm supposed to be and I'll stay here forever. Yes. It'll be this wonderful life that I'll live. Totally. Right. Right. Totally. And,
1: and then, you know, I could not make heads or tails of it. I re- mm. remember so many times driving to my new job and my Whole and I had a long commute, and I just literally would be like, "All right, God, what the what?" Mm-hmm. Like literally every day, I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" Mm-hmm. Like what I've made, either I've made the worst mistake, right? I was like, "Or this whole trusting you thing is for the birds." Well,
0: and that's what's hard too, is when you get a taste of that joy and that uh, really finding your purpose here, and and you're devoting so much of your life to it, and then it's seemingly taken away. That's yeah. super hard.
1: Yes, I took, and I remember before I left my job at the Y originally, I remember again, sort of that intuitive God telling me to trust Mm -hmm. him, Mm -hmm. that I, that it was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if I fully believe that, but I sort of remember this feeling of like, just take the leap. It's going to be all right. And it was almost like the leaving was necessary in some way Mm -hmm. again, but I couldn't, I mean, for two years, I just sat sort of in what I would term the desert Mm -hmm. of of my life going, I, I don't, I don't know know. what I'm doing. Yeah. And I, I thought I was supposed to go this direction, but apparently not. So I'm going to go over here and, but I will say at the time I was getting, I did finally get a master's in conflict management from Lipscomb. I spent those two years uh, away from restore getting my master's and that really helped me at least have something to work for and um, got me through that time. But it was, Almost two years to the day, I was finishing up my graduate project and Scott called me and said, would you like to come back? Mm. And I remember being so up to my eyeballs in my graduate project that I was like, let me think about it. I'll I'll meet with you in a few weeks. Yeah. And I look back now and I was like, obviously I was very, yeah. <laughs> very busy. But I think also I had sort of shut down mm. in those two years, a big piece of myself that was... That wanted to be in control. I just, I hated the thought of being out of control. Mm. And so I'd sort of emotionally shut down. And when he, said, you know, do you want to come back? I was like, I have to go think about it. And then I look back on that and I laugh. I'm like, what was I thinking about? There right. was nothing. was like yeah. it's ridiculous. It's but similar that tells to you- the
0: <laughs> earlier situation when you get the, the very initial job offers, the pastoral care coordinator, yes. where you're thinking and looking back, you're like, what was I thinking? Well, I know that um, I know that this work is really meaningful to you. And so I just wanted to kind of ask, uh, and I know that we talk off, um, off uh, mic a lot about how important small group is. Mm especially now. So I just wanted to, as we round out and kind of close out our conversation, getting to know you, um, obviously a massive uh, uh, passion of you, uh, and it just comes out of you anytime that I'm around you or anyone else, is that this does work and it's just so needed. So can you talk a little bit about you know, when you really started to see, it's one thing to think it's going to work, but then when you really started to see all of the things that you've been able to see since you've been back at Restore and being able to be a part of the small mm-hmm. groups.
1: Yes. So it is funny that when I first started this work, I was completely, obviously i had been a participant, so I knew the experience could be special. Mm. And yet when I started as a coordinator, I still had a lot of skepticism around like really fully understanding what was happening right. in group. Mm. And so it's really for me, I had to keep doing it to to realize that it was not a coincidence. It was not happenstance that people would get into group and things would happen. Mm. Um, But it sort of had to happen over and over again because in my mind it was like, well, maybe it's just lucky. Maybe in the beginning it's just lucky. But over and over again, I would see people come in genuinely stuck in their lives knowing that it could be better but not exactly knowing why. Mm. And I think sometimes that's what's hard to communicate about small group is people ask me, like, who is small group for? Well, it is for everyone. Right. That doesn't really help necessarily market right. the It's right. for everyone. right? But it really is because people will come in in so many different circumstances mm. and in many ways um, just kind of stuck at a point that they could not seem to push out of. Mm. And then group would allow them the safe space to be able to say out loud what maybe they were afraid to say out loud anywhere else. Mm. And everything from being unhappy in their work or being unhappy at home or, um, you know, habits and patterns they couldn't get out of um, kind of making the same mistake over and over again, but it comes in a different package and, you know, Mm. as codependency does. And um, so, but when I look at group, I realize that, For so many, probably just like myself, I was never able to fully express who I was without somebody trying to challenge me on who, what I thought and Mm. what I believed and who I was. And it wasn't And that group experience. I remember so vividly just feeling like this is my authentic self.
0: Mm.
1: None of you in here want me to be anything different than my authentic self. Mm. And what an amazing feeling. Mm. Like what I say is valuable. Other people in the group appreciate it. Nobody's saying, Are you sure? You know, that sort of seed of doubt, and that's what I lived with my whole life, that seed of doubt that what you see or perceive or experiencing somehow comes back to like a character flaw in you. Mm. And if and for the first time I started to realize that's not true. Mm. <laughs> that's not true. I'm not inherently defective, mm. you know, and and then I can sit in group and people appreciate you know, who who I am. Mm. And I think that's just true of every human being. Um, We're not trying to um, manufacture that feeling. I think the reality is is that's the beauty and the grace that is God showing up in group. Mm. It's like, it's not manufactured. It is a moment of genuine seeing of another person and realizing that every person has value. Mm. And every story has value. And we often are the first people to devalue that story, right. and consider it to be, just as I started out this, you know my, this episode saying, "I just don't tell my story very often, because right. I don't know if anyone wants to hear it, but right. you know, I think people come into group thinking, "There's nothing special here about me." Mm. and then find that that's absolutely not true at all. Mm. So I don't think that can happen anywhere. I, I love counseling. I've been, in, I've been in counseling many times. Mm. Um, but I don't think that can totally happen happen in counseling because sometimes you still leave counseling going. Um, you know, but it was just me expressing myself to my counselor.
0: Yeah, it's almost like um, I just kind of dumped out, and I feel better for dumping, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm going anywhere. Yeah. It's kind of like I, I can relate to that experience for sure.
1: Um, but to, to sit with other people and realize the universality of all of our experiences... Um, it, and so there really is, and I've, I've said this before many times, there just is an other about group that mm. happens. Uh, there's a, uh, there's an otherness that is going on that I can't fully even express right. in words.
0: Even sitting through some, as many groups as you have, it has that one consistent theme, which is there is this otherness yes. that you can't plan for, prepare for. It no. just is there, which is really powerful.
1: And it, Comes in so many different forms, and the and and group is a. I totally understand that the reluctance people have to get into group because they're probably automatically thinking, I don't know who's going to be sitting. Yeah, like who's it's unsafe? Be that there. immediately yeah. sounds unsafe. Yes. you're going to put
0: me in a room with six strangers. <laughs> no, nope, unsafe. Yeah, like who are these people? And yeah. who are
1: these people leading? Did and you
0: get a background <laughs> check on them? Like, are we are we lined up? Yeah, yeah. totally.
1: And. I get that. It's like, you know, I, and when I see people sign up for a group, the first thing that I always think is, wow, there—that what courage, honestly, mm. like to sign up and just be like, okay, I'm going to go yeah. and give it a shot. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think we feel is just a huge amount of responsibility and commitment to making it a safe space. Because if you're going to have the courage to sign up and show up, then we're going to take care of you in that process, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and we don't want anything, we, you know, the the thing for me is, like, I don't want to do any harm. I, I want us to to always be helping people move from point A to point B. So so that is, yeah, and I, um, you know, we've talked a lot this past year about how group just seems to be sort of coming into its own mm-hmm. at this point. Um, for many years, I feel like we had to, really try to convince people why it's valuable. right? But we've sort of had this entire cultural shift now yeah. that says that is maybe not as necessary anymore to explain why it's valuable. Right. But uh, but I still think it's always, and Scott and I are always talking about this, it's a lot to ask of anyone to say, come sit with me, yeah. be vulnerable, tell your story. Yeah, especially um, for
0: people like you, me, Scott, anybody that's struggled alone. Because you're yes. just used to it, and also the, the number one fear you have is being known. That's what you're trying to avoid Yes, when you're doing all that self-medicating uh, self. I'm going to read 20 books this year, and it's going to fix me. And it's like, I, but I yeah. read 20 last year, and it didn't help. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. how do I start to change for sure?
1: Yeah, and then how many times, even, even myself, I mean, I'm admitting this here, that I will know I need some assistance. Mm. I know I need some support. But I wake up the next morning and I'm like, ah, I could probably go a little bit longer, mm-hmm. you know, until I hit the wall. Yep. And then when I hit the wall, it's like, ah, it's crisis, yeah, you know. Totally. I think we, uh, a lot of just our human nature is to avoid it, avoid it, avoid it. Sometimes maybe even just say, well, maybe I'm making too big a deal, you know, maybe I just need to. Pull up my big girl pants yeah, minimize keep, it keep right going. right right and that's like, all that's
0: all learned skills from growing up I mean it's yeah. like all of that and, and our culture too you got you kind of got a double whammy where it's usually in the childhood and then also you've got a culture that values superficiality and not true connection and I know that that's um, a big part of it well and I asked Scott the same question if you if you were to talk with someone um, that uh, was really considering group you know what would you say to somebody who's just on the very front end uh, you've done a lot of inner work. Scott's done a lot of inner work. But there are people now that are hitting the wall. Mm-hmm. They are completely alone. And they've they maybe even tried some some things um, similar to where you were. You know, What would you tell yourself then, which would probably inevitably be what you would tell mm. someone else that's just on the beginning of this journey?
1: Yeah. I would say it's okay. I mean, that sounds so cliche. It's okay to ask for help. But right. I think... Um, I think again, sort of going back to this idea that we all tend to compare our struggles and we'll look around and say, well, yeah, I'm struggling, but so-and-so has it worse or, mm. you know, maybe so across the halfway across the world has it worse than me. What right. am I complaining about? Right. And I just think, forget about all that. Like mm. forget that and just say, that doesn't matter. Like I still need Mm. I still need this for me. I need to come in and process. I need some place where um, honestly sometimes it's good to be like I need a place where no one does know me. Mm. Like I need to come in to a bunch of people who have no idea who I am. Right. And and tell my story and I would just say, you know, don't don't be afraid because at the end of the day, I you like know, I can guarantee, I can promise it's going to actually feel better. Mm. It's going to improve your life. It's going to open you up to, to doing more work. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's going to, you're going to discover community that you didn't know existed Mm. or how it could exist in that way. Mm. Um, I think we're all looking for, I've gotten, well, let me say this, I've gotten spoiled. I am so used now to having, this genuine connection with people yeah. that I'm often struck when I go out in the world, how that doesn't exist everywhere. Mm. And I remember even my two years away from the ministry. And I, I remember having a phone conversation with Scott one day over lunch. It was my lunch break and I was outside and I was walking around and we were just having this great conversation and I got off the phone and I just burst into tears. Mm. And I remember calling my husband and I said, I have forgotten, so now I'm going to get emotional. I've forgotten what it's like to be seen. I was like, Scott has always seen who God made me to be, mm. not who he expects me to be. Mm. And I miss that. Mm. I was like, and I am in an environment where that does not happen. Mm. <laughs> like every day going in and being like, you know, w- what is this? Mm. And I, I do think so many people live most of the time in that just this sort of superficial and often fear-based world where being known is not safe Mm. and um genuine connection and like nobody is really caring and i just i've gotten so i'm so genuinely spoiled of being around people who who know who i am who Mm. accept me for who i am and who we can all talk on this really deep level about life Mm. like what's what really what does it really mean and I want that for everyone I'm like come on you know (laughs) let's sit here and have meaningful conversation because isn't that what we all really want yes is to dig in to to life in that deep way and not have to like you know let the world be the world Mm. (laughs) but come in here we'll have our nice (laughs) you know safe community and that's I will say the restore community as a whole from all the 20 years of people coming in group. And, and, you know, we have a lot of people who are all still in touch with that we see yeah. and they'll come back and do group when they need it. You know,
0: mm.
1: I've just never met a better group of people. Mm. And that's the part where I know I'm, I know I'm spoiled, mm. but I'm, but it's amazing to me. I'm like, it's just an amazing thing to go. The world look at all these good people in the world. Yes.
0: Um, well, you start to believe that. You start to believe that, you know, this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the dangerous assumption is when you're struggling is this is the way it is. This is the way it always will be. And there's really not anybody out there that wants to hear my story, want right. to support me. And that is, that's the dangerous place to be. And we've all been there if we're honest. And, and I think that, That was beautifully said. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. It took a lot of courage, I know, to come on here and tell your story as just like Scott, you know, it's not your favorite subject to come on here and talk about yourself. But I, I really appreciate you doing that. And I'm hoping that... You know, a lot of our um, listeners will find their story in your story because it is that human condition that we're talking about, that no matter what you're going through in life, we all crave this. We all, uh, And I know that it's very real. I think the goal of these episodes were to have people know how real it is for you and how real it is for Scott. So thank you so much for sitting down, and we will talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Restore Small Groups is a nonprofit based in Nashville, Tennessee, To find out more, visit us online at restoresmallgroups.org.